Thank you for listening to The Actors Room. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave comments and reviews. The show is also on Facebook, Twitter, Google Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. The website for the show is theactorsroom.libson.com. The site gives you access to all past episodes. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Actors Room, everyone. I hope you're having a great day. I'm having a fantastic day. Because we are going to talk about one of the greatest and most intriguing director to ever grace the silver screen. Stanley Kubrick. Episode number 14 of the Actors Room. My name is Jeff Tarowski. And once again, welcome back. Talking about Stanley Kubrick. Okay. Now... For some reason, I didn't think I would be doing him this soon. I sort of wanted to wait on Stanley for a while. Don't know why. I just thought maybe he'd be down the road. But the more I thought about it, uh, I just, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to talk about him. He's so fascinating. Um, I remember probably the very first Kubrick film I saw was Clockwork Orange. And this is before I moved to New York City. I think I just happened to catch it on, I think, Independent Film Channel, IFC. I happened to catch it on there one night. Late night, saw it, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I'm like, what is this? It was so weird. I couldn't explain it. It was almost like I was watching somebody having a dream. I thought the very first time I saw that film and I went ahead and did research on it and found out that a man named Stanley Kubrick directed it. So I decided to go ahead and buy the movie. I bought it and I kept watching it and watching it. I couldn't get just like how I felt about when I saw Marlon Brando act for the first time and I really saw him act. I think the same thing can be said about what I felt when I first saw a Kubrick film was exactly that. I couldn't stop watching it. I was intrigued by it. I was fascinated by it. It was wonderful to view and I couldn't learn enough. Soon enough, I found myself watching Full Metal Jacket, fell in love with that, and then also the 2001 Space Odyssey, which is even more amazing. And We're going to get into that film later on. There are a lot of things that you should know about that film that you may not know about. And I'm looking forward to talking about that. Well, I'm looking forward. It's really amazing. If you look at his um, resume, it's very short. Now, he didn't do that many films. You would think that he did. But it just seems that every film he did was amazing, which is so rare. You're bound to have clunkers every now and then. I don't think Stanley Kubrick did. So... Talking about him is going to be a lot of fun. And it also seems to me that a lot of other directors seem to just relish in talking about Stanley. Their eyes light up. They're really engulfed in what he had to say on film through the lens of his camera. Greats like Scorsese. Um, I'm trying to think Steven Spielberg. Okay, just a few examples of the directors that really, truly looked up to Stanley 
and uh, express their devout affection for his work. And when you watch his work, they are like, for me, when I watch a Stanley Kubrick film, I think of a wonderful work of art. He's just not making a picture. It's more than that. There's something underneath uh, what he's trying to say. So every time I watch one of his films, I get something more out of it, which is something that an artist loves and appreciates. It's art. So here we go, talking about the artist, and his name is Stanley Kubrick. Here's a quote from Gary D. Rhodes in his book called Stanley Kubrick, Essays on His Film and Legacy. Quote, One may speculate that the process of editing still images in accordance with the shooting script in the collaborative environment of a general interest photo magazine shaped Kubrick's emerging talent in combining words and images for storytelling purposes. And that's the end of the quote. And I wanted to start off this episode with that quote because I find it important that Stanley found inspiration behind a camera lens first and foremost because then after that, it all came together in pieces. Now, I say that because he started off being a photographer when he was very young. The beginning is always a great place to start, right? Stanley Kubrick would take some amazing photos at a very early age that would get him going in the right direction and becoming a film director. Now, it is said that he took intimate photos of boxer Rocky Graciano waiting for a call to the ring. And Stanley was merely a teenager at this time when he got a job as a photojournalist for Look magazine. And he seemed to catch Graziano in a tense situation at the time. The picture was presented in Look magazine. Kubrick also photographed artist Peter Arno in a nude sketching session. The photo was not a frontal shot, but from the back and in black and white. This offending picture was published in September of 1949 and created a bit of a stir. Stanley didn't mind. Here's a bit of background into Look Magazine and how it stacked up against other magazines at the time. Now, it looks like to me that uh, Life Magazine was its rival. Uh, They were very similar, except that Look Magazine was a bi-weekly And Life was a weekly magazine. So that meant that Look Magazine had more time to construct deeper stories and more intriguing pictures. They had more time to work with. And I think that it was more about quality than quantity that Stanley learned during this time. Look had better taste and more class than Life did. Stanley Kubrick was born on July 26, 1928 in Manhattan, New York City, and he was born into a Jewish family. His dad's name was Jack, and he was a doctor. His mother's name, Sadie. He is the eldest of two children. He has a sister named Barbara, and she was six years younger. He learned to play chess at the age of 12, and it became a lifelong passion for Kubrick. He did not play serious chess until 18 years old, joining the Marshall Chess Club. 
He says that chess taught him about patience and discipline when making a decision. Stanley has stated that he considered himself a misfit throughout his entire school career and had nearly no interest at all in academics. He found reading to be associated with schoolwork and therefore tedious in nature. He claims that the first book he ever truly enjoyed was after he graduated from high school. And it is also during this time in his life, at the age of 13, that he found himself interested in taking pictures. His dad got him a camera. And at that time, it became one of the most important things in his life. Now, for some reason, the time of his life doing photography is not talked about like I think it should. I just don't. Um, I've seen a lot of documentaries about Stanley and things that are said about him. And it's almost like a passing thing that's said like, oh, yeah, and when he was younger, he, he uh, worked for Look Magazine and, you know, he, he liked fiddling with the camera. Nay, nay, nay. I find this, and that's just me, learning about something like that, I think is important. That is a perfect example of something that shaped him when he was younger. It was important to him, and it should be important to his story. All right, he learned a lot, I think, at that time learning about a camera lens, uh, learning about taking pictures the right way, standing at the right spot, uh, making sure it looked good, uh, capturing a moment. That's the key in any art form. And that's the same that goes for photography. I mean, you got to capture a moment. I believe that it was within his interest for photography that he began learning how to diagnose and solve problems now, he felt that schools didn't teach that simple concept. I mean, you got to understand that Kubrick was a self-learner, I think. Uh, he didn't need a college to teach him how to use a camera. He just uh, went out, you know, took the camera that his dad bought for him, and took pictures and learned about it in his own way. Read books about it. He talked to people about it. Uh, he did whatever he had to do to learn about the camera. He felt he didn't need to sit in a little room and listen to some teacher go on and on and on monotone probably about cameras. So he did it on his own. Uh, He found out uh, how to use a camera, uh, build a dark room, and find out the best way to sell his pictures and make a possible living out of it. Now Kubrick graduated from William Howard Taft High School in the Bronx in 1945. I checked out his yearbook on classmates.com, and they have his yearbook on there, but no Stanley. I didn't see him anywhere in that yearbook. Now, he says he graduated in 1945, and it's documented that he graduated in 1945. But I'm telling you, there is, I'm pretty sure I looked at the right yearbook. I mean, I'm almost positive. He is nowhere in that thing. So maybe he was just absent that day for picture day. I don't know, but I couldn't find him in there. So. But they say 1945, uh, William Howard Taft High School. Uh, He had an average grade of, get this, 67. For all of you wondering what that means, that's a D plus, barely. And he claims that during this time, uh, if you uh, didn't have at least a 75 average, there was no way you were getting into college. That was a cutoff. So he was, what, eight points Eight points under the average to get into college. 
And you know what? It's kind of hard to imagine that uh, someone of Kubrick's intelligence and genius didn't have good enough grades to get into college. Get that. You know, I, I don't feel so bad. I don't feel bad at all. Before, uh, before he graduated from high school, uh, he had already sold two of his photographs to Look Magazine. Uh, and the only courses he did well in were the sciences, of course. Well, I guess, and this is a cute story I found out, I guess his dad uh, went to NYU. Now, his dad was a doctor, so uh, his dad went to NYU and was doing all he could to get his son into college. So this is what he did. Uh, And this is quite similar of what happened to me. Uh, My grades were on par with Stanley. They sucked. Uh, It's embarrassing, and I ended up with a grade point average that I will not reveal to you because it's just sad. Anyways, uh, it w- my grade point average was so low that there was no way I was going to get into state college. So I had to go to a city college. And my dad, who went to Cleveland State, um, actually got me into the dean's office. And we sat down and had a conversation. And he said, listen, uh, I went to Cleveland State, as you know. I want my son to go here. Is that okay? And I felt like really bad about it, like my dad was pulling strings for me to get into Cleveland State, and it worked. Uh, He got me in. So that was pretty cool, my dad, to do that. Well, Stanley's dad did the same thing at NYU. Said, hey, I went here. I want my son to go here. Make it happen. And they said, "Uh, no, sorry. So it didn't work for Stanley. Oh, well. I guess his dad tried, right? Yeah, what are you going to do? So uh, Stanley decided to take night classes to gain enough credit to enter a day college. Um, And about two weeks into this night course that he was taking, uh, an employee at Look Magazine mentioned that he had a pretty good chance to uh, get an apprenticeship and then eventually get a full-time job at Look Magazine. So instead of freelancing, which he was already doing, This was a chance for him to actually get a real job. So he ended up working at Look for four years as a full-time employee and photojournalist. Kubrick says that these four years were without a doubt more valuable in his process as an artist than any education he could have imagined getting out of college. Um, That was his college, these four years at Look, okay? Plus, he was getting paid for it. Think about that for a second. Instead of going to college and paying thousands and thousands of dollars to get that education, he switched tables. He actually got a job and felt that he learned more at that job, hands-on, and getting paid for it than he ever did at college. He's just a smart man. Very smart man. He would go and see every film he could at the Museum of Modern Art. He, of course, was fascinated with film. Then comes a story that I find absolutely fascinating and a look into the mind and determination and curiosity that is Stanley Kubrick. Now, he had a friend that worked at a studio and Kubrick asked how much it costed that studio to make a short film, which I believe to be about 10, 15 minutes. His friend said the studio paid about $40,000 to make a short film. This blew Stanley's mind away. He said, that is way too much. There is no way. And the the guy said, yeah, that's what they paid. So 
Stanley believing this was a bit too high, he went into research and problem-solving mode. He called up Kodak and asked about the price of film. Then he called the lab and asked how much it cost to develop it. Then he called to see how much it would cost to rent a 35mm movie camera, and so on, and so on, and so on, to every last detail. Well, anyway, he discovered that it would cost only $3,000 to do it on his own. That's, a, that's quite a difference. And he soon realized that he could make some money making documentaries. Now, This was at the age of 20 that he started to make documentaries. Actually, I think it was more about 19, closer to 19. He didn't make much money doing the short films because he soon realized that his buddy that told him that that studio was making $40,000, they went out of business. So obviously, they were wasting too much money making movies. But in that process, Stanley learned how to do it not only a cheap or economic way, But his way, he was slowly developing a process, a process that would serve him well. And then he soon realized the real money was in feature films. Going into filmmaking gave Stanley the chance to make poetic art. He had it in his mind to use all forms of art and incorporate it into his movies. Even before he made successful films, He had that ambition, and he soon realized that he had to learn a lot. He spent countless hours reading books on film theory, and one of the first short films he ever made was called The Flying Padre in 1955. And yes, it was about a flying priest. Hey, everyone, he was learning, all right? (laughs) You know, it's not like it was the flying nun, but it's about the same thing, right? A flying priest. But like I said, uh, he was getting his hands on any project he felt that he could do. He took the time to gain experience in every aspect of film. And he was doing it on his own. His first feature film was Fear and Desire in 1953. He had no idea how to direct actors at all. And Stanley explained that most of the actors in the early years were just plain out horrible. The film did not make a profit and he ended up raising the money privately. And I don't understand that. I don't even know what that means. Like he knew people like donors and stuff like fundraising. I don't get it. Like he never put up any of his own money. Really. He always found a way to like have donors or invest it privately. Now I'm guessing that he just, you know, maybe what it is, is uh, I think that he was very persuasive. Number one. Uh, And yes, maybe he did have some contacts that believed in him. And he convinced them, listen, put your faith in me. Put your money on me. And I will turn it around and I will make you money. Okay, just give me that chance. I have that passion. So I think that he was good at that. I think that he sold himself and his product and his talent to the highest bidder. To put money down on his films instead of having to put his own money in. He always had a keen mind on that, a keen mind on the right way to use money. Now, Kubrick would end up saying that the film just wasn't very good. So while it was showing at certain theaters, Stanley went right to work right away to finding a new script 
and start promoting the next project immediately, hoping to ensure producers to place their faith in him. And during this time in his life, all right, Stanley was still an avid chess player and would find time, about 12 hours a day at a stretch, to play competitive chess for quarters in the park. He played for fun, for stimulation, but also admits that he made about $4 a day playing chess. Not bad. Not bad at all. You know, not great, but I'll tell you what, it's enough money to eat with. And that's what he said. He would end up playing for, like I mentioned earlier, 12 hours a day and was actually a very good competitive player. Uh, The film Killer's Kiss was his next film that he took on. And I guess it's reported that Stanley was on welfare when he shot this one. There was uh, practically no budget, and Kubrick had to sneak in shots while sitting in a parked car. Now, that's crazy. Stanley was still growing as a director, and he claims that this film's quality was that of, quote, student level of filmmaking. Then Kubrick decided to create a production company with James B. Harris. But it was Kubrick's next film that started him on his way. It was in 1956, and the movie was called The Killing. It starred Sterling Hayden. And if you remember, Sterling Hayden was in The Godfather. He played the crooked cop that gets shot at and killed by Michael in the restaurant. I really like this guy. I like this actor. Uh, He has killer presence. I always thought that with Sterling. He just does. And him and Kubrick got along well. And... uh, Kubrick directing him in this film really made made it work, okay? And this film really got Stanley on the map. It just did. And I think Sterling Hayden had a lot to do with that. You know, I saw this a few years ago, and I just loved it. It was about two, three years ago I saw this for the very first time. It's an older film. I mean, it was 1956. And I watched every single second with a smile on my face. Um, I do that with Kubrick films, though. I'll just, I'm like, I'm so amazed about what I'm watching. I just just like, I sit there with my, I'm sure my mouth is like open a little bit. Like, you know, it's like kind of hanging there a little bit and just kind of hanging down. And, you know, maybe my tongue sticking out. I'm just kidding. But anyways, I just enjoy watching his films. I just do. And this one I did as well. The first time I saw it. Um, You know, the, the great thing about this historic picture, and I think it is historic, is the fact that Kubrick filmed it in the nonlinear structure. Um, And at first the studio didn't like this idea, so they had Stanley go back and piece it together in the linear structure. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, non-linear would be like the time sequences being jumbled up during the progression of the film. And then making it all come together at the end. Uh, A good example is uh, the film uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, okay, where the scenes are all just sort of jumbled up and at the end it makes sense. Well, that's what Stanley did in this picture. Very, very cool. And uh, Tarantino loved this uh, part of uh, putting a movie together as well. So Stanley made it linear, and it made it even more confusing. So the studios are like, okay, this non-linear thing is just not going to work. You know, do it the right way, the normal way. So Stanley's like, I'm sure he was like, oh, man, what are they doing to me? So he had to sit down and, and piece it together linear. 
So when he brought it back to them and they all took a look at it, they said, okay, we really don't understand it now. Put it back the way it was. So I guess Stanley got what he wanted anyway. And it uh, worked out great for everybody because it turned out to be just wonderfully done. Uh, The success of the killing opened a few doors for Kubrick and his team. They approached MGM and were encouraged to look through their story logs to see if there was anything that they wanted to make. And I'm just going to sidestep a bit here to talk about Stanley as a director, just for a moment, because I don't want to forget it. All right. He found a way through his progression as a director to shut out certain emotions. He did this because he felt that it could hinder the project and its growth. He is noted as saying that frustration was an emotion he couldn't afford to dedicate energy to. Patience was indeed the key to success. You had to find a way to juggle all things at once and not go insane. This was among many of his genius traits. His process was undeniable. He made a point to notate most of his life in the future with detailed step-by-step processes. Now, there's a story I remember hearing about where he had a friend watch one of his dogs. All right. Now, Kubrick presented the dog sitter with a page by page description of how to go about taking on this daunting task. You know, watching a dog. Well, you know what? That's just the way Stanley rolled, okay? Process was key. Kubrick would go on to say that he was sure people noticed how he would have a vague and withdrawn look on his face. I'm thinking, he said, always thinking about what I'm doing now, and what I'm going to do next. I also don't consider Stanley to be an actor's director, and I'll tell you why. I think he pretty much lets them be, and I think his general feeling is that actors should just do their job. And uh, if he feels that in some way he needs to step in to help him with this process, he will. But for the most part, I think he just lets them be. Um, Maybe I'm wrong on that. I could be. Uh, But uh, then again, you know, that's just how I feel about that. Uh, I think he knew the limitations of his actors before he hired them. Uh, He never wanted to put them in a bad spot, so to speak. And we will discuss his relationship with Shelley Duvall uh, soon enough in The Shining. Uh, They went through a lot together during the filming of that one. Uh, He ultimately decided to buy the rights of Paths of Glory, the next film he was going to make. Kirk Douglas was also involved with this project, and he would end up saying that he knew that this picture was going to be good and would stand the test of time. Stanley, being the perfectionist that he was, had the soldiers redoing the last meal scene 68 times. And because it it was an eating scene, of course, a new roast duck had to be prepared for every take. And I want to talk about this for a second. Doing a scene over and over can get exhausting, right? I mean, the scene stops. You regroup. Then you put forth the lines and the emotions again. I mean, it's great for the actor if he messes up and you get to do it again. But what if he gives a stellar performance and the director didn't like the lighting? Or the director didn't like the angle of the shot? Or he just wants to do it from another angle? It just seems like, you know, there are many, many levels in a scene that a director wants to look at and do differently and get a different shot. And this poor actor or actors 
or actresses in the scene. Gotta keep doing it over and over and over again. And Stanley Kubrick was known to do a scene numerous times until he got what he wanted. So you can just imagine how daunting of a task it is on an actor, especially if they're giving a very emotional scene. And Stanley doing many, many takes on just one scene goes to show how dedicated he was to getting the perfect moment he wanted. There was going to be perfection. And here's a cool story about an incident that happened on the set of Paths of Glory. Stanley was displaying his need for ultimate control during filming. And we end up with this quote from Kirk Douglas about what happened. Quote, He made the veteran actor, whose name is Adolf, do the same scene 17 times. That was my best reading, the actor said. I think we can break for lunch now. It was well past the usual lunchtime, but Kubrick said he wanted just one more take. The actor went into an absolute fury. In front of Douglas and the entire crew, he blasted off on what he claimed was Kubrick's dubious parentage and made several other unprintable references to Kubrick's relative greenness in the art of directing actors. Kubrick merely listened calmly, and after the actor was done sputtering about, he said quietly, and this is Kubrick, he said quietly, all right, let's do this scene once more. And then the actor said, fine. And the actor went back to work. Stanley instinctively knew what to do. End of the quote. The film Pass of Glory was a moderate success, but didn't make much at the box office. Kubrick ended up meeting his future wife on the set. Her name was Chris, and she performed the German song at the end of the movie. Uh, after Passive Glory, Stanley embarked on a few projects that were abandoned, uh, one with Kirk Douglas and another with Gregory Peck. He then got hired on board to collaborate with Marlon Brando in his western called One-Eyed Jacks. Brando saw Passive Glory and was impressed, so he wanted Stanley to direct his film. Now, I had mentioned earlier in my Marlon Brando podcast, in depth, about what happened in that whole situation. It's fascinating. So, if you want to hear about that and that story about Stanley and Marlon working together, go ahead and click on Marlon Brando, and I believe it's episode number two. Uh, I talk about One-Eyed Jacks and why Stanley left the project. Okay, then came Spartacus in 1960. He was not the first director on this picture. Anthony Mann was one week into filming. And I had mentioned earlier that I thought it was about halfway through. It was only one week in. Uh, the director and Kirk Douglas were not getting along. Uh, and this is the reason why uh, he left was because of Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas was a producer, uh, one of the producers of this film. So he had a lot of pull. Um, and so he decided, you know what? I worked really well with uh, Stanley Kubrick on Passive Glory. Why don't we just get Stanley in here? He's very, very talented. So that's what he did. Uh, Stanley has said that he was not given enough control on this film and didn't see eye to eye with the writers. And, you know, he, they didn't let him change anything. And that's something that Stanley likes to do. Uh, if he's going to be directing a picture, he wants to be able to change things from time to time. And I think most directors do anyway. But because I think he came in after they started this project, you know, Stanley liked to be involved with the project from the very beginning. And he was just kind of got thrown into the, this, this show. Uh, and what I think what happened 
is that Stanley just he couldn't pass this up. This this was a great opportunity for him to get into a an epic film. He thought, so he decided to do it. And uh, yeah, he didn't like the fact that he didn't have control. Of course. Now this is interesting, and I didn't know this. It took two years to make this film. Wow, the whole movie was done out of the back lot at Universal. Now Stanley wasn't impressed with Spartacus overall, and states that the first half was okay, and the second half was just plain silly. I enjoyed it. I thought it was. I thought it was a good movie. Um, I was impressed with all the performances, to be quite honest with you, um, especially Tony Curtis, uh, and. Kurt Douglas gives us some emotional work. And of course, Laurence Olivier does his usual top-notch performance. In 1962 came a controversial film called Lolita. It's about an older man being infatuated with a 14-year-old girl. This subject matter is touchy, and it's very seldom discussed or portrayed. But this is the kind of subject matter that Kubrick liked. He wanted to be involved with something that made people think. Make them feel something. Art gives us the ability to bring certain matters to light, right? Uh, Give it a platform that garners discussion. James Mason plays the older gentleman and pervert, I think, and he plays the part perfectly. He has great little moments. Now, Peter Sellers' performance is also one to note. Lolita is played by Sue Lyon, and she was well cast. I want to play a clip for you from the film. I want to set it up, though. The older man married his young girl's mother. The mother has recently died by getting run over by a car. So Lolita is all his. They move away and begin a sexual relationship. And in this scene, she is lying on the bed and he is painting her nails. This is super creepy and it displays a pedophile delivering dialogue of control. Why were you so late coming home from school yesterday afternoon? Yesterday, yesterday. What was yesterday? Yesterday was Thursday. Oh, well, um, was I late? Yes, you were. You finished school at 3 o'clock. You were not home until 6 o'clock. That's right, that's right. Michelle and I um, stayed to watch football practice. In the Frigid Queen. What do you mean, in the Frigid Queen? I was driving around, and I thought I saw you through the window. Oh, yeah, well, we stopped there for a malt afterwards. What difference does it make? You were sitting at a table with two boys. Yeah, well, Roy and Rex just happened to sit down with us. Roy and Rex? The co-captains, the football team. I thought we understood no dates. What do you mean, no dates? They just sat down at our table. I don't want you around them. They're nasty-minded boys. Oh, you're a fine one to talk about someone else's mind. Don't avoid the issue. I told you, no dates. It wasn't a date. It was a date. It wasn't a date. It was a date, Lolita. It was not a date. It was a date. It wasn't a date. Well, whatever it was that you had yesterday afternoon, I don't want you to have it again. And while we're on the subject, how did you come to be so late on Saturday afternoon? Saturday, I went to my piano lesson. Your piano lesson? I thought that was on Wednesday. No, it was changed to Saturday, remember? Between two and four, Miss Starch, piano. Well, ask Michelle. She was with me. Ask Michelle. That's what you always say to me. Well, now, for a change, I'm going to ask you something about Michelle. (laughs) 
You can't have her. She belongs to a Marine. I will ignore that idiotic joke. Why does she give me these searching looks whenever she comes to the house? How should I know? Have you told her anything about us? No. Have you? You've told her nothing. You think I'm crazy? You spend too much time with that girl. I don't want you to see her so often. Oh, come on. She's the only friend I've got in this stinking world. He never let me have any fun. No fun? You have all the fun in the world. We have fun together, don't we? I, whenever you want something, I buy it for you automatically. I take you to concerts, to museums, to movies. I do all the housework. Who does the, the tidying up? I do. Who does the cooking? I do. You and I, we have lots of fun. Don't we, Lolita? Fucking creep. Okay, listen. If that doesn't give you the willies, I don't know what will. Alright? This is a, just a disturbing subject for me because the girl in the film is 14. And I have a daughter that age, alright? The thought of some older man laying his paws on my 14-year-old daughter absolutely enrages me. Beyond all, like, I see red. You know, my mom used to say that when she was pissed or something, you know? I never really understood it when I was a kid. And she would be, the, you know, she'd be mad and she'd be like, I'm so mad, I, I see red. And I'd just be like, I wonder if she actually does see red, that she's that mad. Well, you know what? I actually do see fucking red when I think about this. So, you can see where I come from. Uh, Kubrick would go on to say that nobody wanted to make this picture. And you can see why. The subject matter enrages people. It just does. But he loved doing films like that. That he did films that no one else wanted as well. Um, I also want to mention that Shelley Winters gives a notable performance in this. And uh, this film is the first in a handful of projects done by Kubrick that delves into thought-provoking and behind-the-curtain hush-hush matters that I will discuss later in the show. I find it fascinating and too coincidental the things that Stanley shows us. I feel this film kicked that off. Dr. Strangelove in 1964 is a film that is different on so many levels. For starters, it was written so precisely about government policies that it's scary. How the heck did they know about that stuff? Just incredible. And touching on the topic of nuclear war is brave, and then giving it a comedic spin is pure genius. I have to be honest that I was lukewarm about this movie the first time I saw it. And it keeps getting better each time I see it. I even watched it again on Friday night, and it got better once again. Here are some tidbits about this movie. The film led to actual changes in policy to ensure that the event that something like this in the film that happened would never happen in real life. How about that? Stanley has said that this film was inspired at the thought of mortality, I believe his own mortality, and about the whole hydrogen bomb thing going on back then, in the respect to the invention of the bomb. Peter Sellers played three different roles in this movie. Let's stop right there for a second, all right? Not only is that impressive, all right, but it is rare to do three roles in the same movie and do them so convincingly. It goes to show how talented that Peter Seller was. And he kind of reminds me of Stanley Tucci and a few of his characters that he does. He really does. Uh, he was paid, and this is Peter Sellers, was paid $1 million 
for the film, which was 55% of the budget. But Stanley felt fine with this. And this is what he says. Stanley says he got three for the price of six. Think about it. He also improvised most of his lines. When he says, when he says, when he says, hey, he plays a president, right? And they're in the war room. And uh, there's a George C. Scott's character is like this uh, general, a real hyper guy, real funny character he plays. And they have this Russian ambassador in the room. Well, the Russian ambassador and George C. Scott's character, they don't get along at all. George C. Scott just hates the Russian guy. <laughs> and so they start, you know, fighting in the war room. And the president, Peter Sellers' character, he's like, hey, stop that. You know, there's no fighting in the war room. And because Peter Sellers was doing a lot of improvising on this film, I really hope that he came up with that. Isn't that just brilliant? If he just kind of came up with that off the top of his head, instead of like maybe Stanley sitting down and, you know, writing that down. I mean, I'm not sure if it was improv or not, but I'm just hoping and praying that it was because that's just brilliant. Uh, This was also the first movie for uh, James Earl Jones. And like I said earlier, George C. Scott gave an inspirational performance. His facial expressions make sense. So funny. And Stanley convinced Sterling Hayden to come out of retirement to act in this movie. There he is again, Sterling Hayden. Uh, This was Gene Siskel's favorite movie. And I want to play a clip that has one of Sellers' characters, the president, talking with the Russian president, revealing to him that there has been an accidental launch against his country, and this is just epic stuff. Give a listen. Hello? Uh, hello, Di- hello, Dimitri. Listen, I-, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. 
That's so good. You know, my favorite part is、uh, when he offends the Russian president by saying, "You know, it's not like a courtesy call," and, and like he insults the Russian guy because he's calling because he has to, and that you know he's not calling just to say hello. I mean, it's just a great conversation, and what acting by Sellers. Kubrick had actually wanted to do a sequel of this movie in 1995 called "Son of Strange Love." Now that would have been interesting. What do you think you're doing, Dave? The computer from 2001: Space Odyssey scared the shit out of me. All right, the thought of having machine that we created turn、uh, against us. All right, I mean this entire film goes above and beyond, and shows us just how dedicated and detailed Stanley Kubrick really is. Now, before I dive into information about the film, I just want to talk freely for a moment about it. All right, now I really got into this film when I was studying acting, and my roommate at the time was a really big Kubrick film. Now I love them too, but he, my roommate, and I'm gonna bring up Doug White, okay, at the time, he really got me to watch and study a film. Doug did,、um, and Stanley Kubrick is a great director to do that. So、uh, we sat down and we watched Space Odyssey, and he pointed out a few things, and I saw a few things, and and the music and the 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 acting is you know secondary in this film. This film is all about the content. It is all about the visuals, the music, the movement. It's like a ballet. It's so beautiful.、Um, And so historic, and I'll never forget just sitting back and enjoying a film for its beauty, and for other things as well. I have to say, it is between this one and Eyes Wide Shut that are my favorites. Although I love them all, I have a special place in my heart for this film because I really truly believe it's an art. Uh, it is art, and it has a lot to say. And he took his time to make this picture so wonderful. And I have to tell you that the first time I saw it, I was confused. I will admit it. I mean, this is a complicated film. Okay, so Stanley and co-creator Arthur C. Clarke have said that the film was supposed to raise more questions than answers. And if the audience understood it, it means they didn't do their job. The film struggled in the early goings in the theater. Then the younger audiences caught up on it, and the gross just took off. The film had a total of 13 nominations, but only one for special effects. And Stanley won an Oscar for special effects in 2001: Space Odyssey. And I love the big wheel story. Remember the part in the film where one of the astronauts is exercising, where he's running in this module, and it looks like he's going, he's jogging, and he's he's going up the wall, side of the wall, and and he reaches the top, and he's not falling off because he's in space. Well, he had made a special、um, wheel and a special set just for that scene, and I just thought that was just a cool special effect. 
even for that day and age, I mean, it was brilliant. Brilliantly done. And I also have to confess that it took a few viewings of this one to truly appreciate it. And Woody Allen felt the same way. When I first saw 2001, I didn't like it. And I was very disappointed. And, uh, and then three or four months later, I was with some woman in California and she was telling me what a wonderful film it was. And, and I went to see it again and I liked it a lot more the second time I saw it. And then a couple of years later, I saw it again and I thought, gee, this is really a sensational movie. And it was one of the few times in my life that uh, I realized that the artist was much ahead of me. And the beautiful classical music played is such a nice touch. I guess they wanted to have Pink Floyd do the soundtrack, but I guess they had a prior commitment. You know, I love Pink Floyd, but I'm, I'm happy with the final decision of the choice of music here. I just am. I thought it was perfect. Kubrick had several tons of sand imported, washed, and painted for the moon surface scenes. Producer George Paul's science fiction movie Conquest of Space was a big influence on Space Odyssey. I love that there aren't any, like, big names in this movie, as far as actors go. Um, it's the story and effects and pure intrigue that drive the film. And maybe, just maybe, Kubrick didn't want to deal with any divas and wanted actors that would be easier to mold, in a way. And here's a funny tidbit. I guess the machine in the movie was supposed to be a master chess player, but the real machine was a weak opponent. And this amused Stanley very much. And he would call the machine a bumbling pisswit. A bumbling pisswit. Who says pisswit? Stanley Kubrick does, alright? Stanley was determined to make a science picture film that looked real. And it took him 18 months to shoot all these shots. Goes to show why he only did a handful of films. He paid each film the dedication it deserved and it shows. Listen, I could go on for about two more hours about Odyssey, and I can. And so that's why I'm going to dedicate an episode to it in the future, because there is a lot to talk about. But I have to move on. Um, before I do, I also would like to mention that Stanley, after the wrapping of Space Odyssey, wanted to make a film about the life and times of Napoleon. He had been fascinated with this, and fascinated with Napoleon. And he did much research, but it just never happened. Alright. In 1971, a clockwork orange came on. And this became a cult classic. A truly creepy film. Eerie. And quite controversial as well. I believe Stanley was trying to say something to us, and this is just my opinion, about the MK Ultra mind control theory. Now, you gotta understand... I really don't know much about that stuff, alright? I really don't. But, you can't deny the subject matter in some of Kubrick's films. And this is one of them. Now, I got my hands on the film script from a friend of mine way back in the day. And it was really fascinating to read. I love the dialogue in this work of art. Because that is precisely what this is. A work of art. It's supremely different and makes you think. I want to quickly point out that Stanley would begin to film the rest of his projects in England. Why? 
a couple of reasons. He liked it there for one, and he was doing pictures his way without certain restrictions from Hollywood Studios. Now, he explains that he was in the position where he could make that happen, and it would have been different years before. Translation, he had enough money of his own and didn't have to worry about interference from the studios. That's beautiful and great that he was able to do that. And another factor might have been that there was a rising fear of uh, feeling unsafe in America. Uh, He once again used classical music in this one as well. Now this film was difficult for uh, actor Malcolm McDowell. And he was the star of the film, Alex. He had his cornea scratched a few times because of the torture scenes. He actually had a few broken ribs as well. And uh, I have viewed a few interviews that uh, Malcolm has done in the past about Stanley. And he seems a bit heartbroken that he wasn't closer with the director. Uh, They had a blast in the film and they played chess together and all that stuff. And when the film ended, uh, yeah, so did the relationship. And I am sure this happens often. I mean, it's okay, Malcolm. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think that Malcolm just missed him, you know, wanted to hang out with him. I mean, that's cool. I get it. Um, the final scene of this film took 74 takes. And I want to take a moment to discuss the misconception of Stanley Kubrick being intimidating, rude, shrewd, standoffish, and being a hermit. All of them are not true. Many people close to him have stated that he was a courteous, gracious, intelligent, and friendly person. He enjoyed having friends over for dinner all the time. He was available. He was just a private person and kept to himself. You know, I always wondered why they called it a clockwork orange. I always thought that was just a weird title for a movie, right? Um, It's just strange. So I guess the author of the book, and his name is Anthony Burgess, says that it was an East London slang. Uh, And I I don't know the exact meaning of it. I guess that's just what they said in uh, East London. All right. So the film was rated X when it was released. And it was also interesting the way Kubrick used the sexual images in this film. You know, when you watch this film, really notice, like, stuff in the background or pieces of art. Like, the one piece of art, like this object, was like a big, a big penis, alright? An erect penis with, like, balls and everything. There's, like, penises everywhere in this movie. I'm sure, you know, it's it's pretty hard to miss. Uh, And Stanley had complete control over this film. Listen to this. Uh... He was in control of not only the filming, but the advertising, which included posters, commercials, and the trailer. Complete control. Ultimately, Stanley regretted making the film because he heard that it persuaded kids to join gangs in England. His next film was Barry Lyndon in 1975, and this one can best be described by me in one word. Beautiful. Stanley did it. He created a visually stimulating film, a true work of art, and the costumes. And you know what? The lighting was so artistic 
and the way he used the candles. This has got to be his least popular film, all right? And I get that. But you have to see. You have to see it. If you haven't seen it, believe me, you're not going to be disappointed. I mean, it's just a beautiful film. Give it a try. Ryan O'Neill stars as an Irish rogue that wins the heart of a rich widow and replaces her husband in high society 18th century England. A special camera used by NASA was used during the candlelit scenes. The film took 200 days to shoot, just a tad over two years. This is Scorsese's favorite Kubrick film. This movie would get nominated for Best Picture and have a total of seven nominations. It took home three Oscars, but the film did not do well at the box office. The lack of financial success of this movie forced Stanley to make his next film, The Shining. Stephen King's novel of the same name brought Stanley Kubrick and Jack Nicholson together. Now, I touched on this film when I did Jack Nicholson's episode, and I just love this film. I like horror-slash-thriller movies, and this one does it all. A cute story is that Stanley was very protective of the child actor, and his name was Danny. He made sure that he was always comfortable, and Danny was convinced that he was doing a drama and not a horror film. So they had this kid convinced that he was doing some, you know, sunny little uh, drama picture, you know, just doing a little uh, little sad little movie here. Uh, Don't pay attention to all the blood or all the other stuff. I wonder how he kept them away from all the creepy stuff going on. I mean, I mean, kids are kids, right? They're curious. They probably, he probably wanted to see what was going on. Uh, but uh, Stanley was very protective and leery of him finding out about certain things. So that was kind of cute. He did care about the kid, and he cared about his actors in a certain way. And we're going to get to Shelley Duvall in a second. Uh, the Here's Johnny scene took three days to film. And I guess they went through 60 doors because Jack was just going off on those doors. That's pretty cool. All right, Shelley Duvall had a really tough time during filming with Stanley. The fact that he would do numerous takes was normal, of course, and Shelley had many emotional scenes. So it just took a lot out of her. She also felt that Kubrick was mean to her on purpose to make sure she gave a powerful performance. She went to the brink. She also experienced severe fatigue and hair loss. Damn. Now that's really going through it, man. That is going through it. After the filming of Barry Lyndon, Stanley went to work trying to find his next project. He started reading recent novels to get inspiration. I guess his secretary would hear him throwing books in uh, his office up against the wall. Well, the ones he didn't like anyway. The day he read The Shining by King, it was a quiet day. So you knew he was finally doing something with this book. The color of red is seen in uh, nearly every uh, scene in the film, if you take notice. Stephen King ultimately did not like the rendition. He felt it didn't possess its inner meaning, and it was all show. He didn't like the casting as well. I say... You know what? And I love King. I do. I say, Steve, bad call, man. 
I loved it. I loved everything about this film. And the casting, alright? This is one of the greatest thrillers of all time, alright? It's disturbing, and it has that mystery at the end. It leaves you thinking about what the ending meant. I love Stanley Kubrick for making me do that. Now that, of course, is a scene from his next project, Full Metal Jacket. I fucking love that scene. I love it so much. I can't take it, alright? I remember playing it over and over and over and over and over. It was kind of scary. I just love that little sequence where he's got that song going, that bird song. And he kind of messes with it a little bit. And it plays into the scene. And the way he uses it up against... uh, you know, there's there's soldiers sitting around, and he's got... Okay, I'll set up the scene for you, if you've never seen it. Okay, there's a battle going on, and a camera crew of three guys are, are sidestepping and taking a long shot of sitting soldiers behind a small protective wall. As bombs are going off, and army tanks are firing away. I mean, just brilliant visual and sound. For me, a tremendous accomplishment. The film itself is a bit of a mixed bag for me, though. I truly adore the first half of the film, but the second half, eh, I could, I could take it or leave it. Maybe it's just because of the first half is so amazing, and the rest of the film, after the basic training part, it just didn't live up to it. I guess the actor, Vincent D'Onofrio, gained over 60 pounds for his role as Private Leonard Gomer Pyle Lawrence. The casting in this movie? My God, great.
R. Lee Remy. I'm sorry. Did I say his name wrong? I did. All right. R. Lee Ermy. Okay. Just perfect. The story is that Ermy was an advisor because of his background in the military. He told Kubrick that the actor that he would eventually play wasn't portraying a sergeant in the right way. So I guess what happened was, all right, Ermy was on the set as an advisor, so to speak. And he felt that the, uh, the actor playing the uh, sergeant originally, uh, he wasn't very good. So he, he told Kubrick, uh, I could do this role. Let me do it. And Kubrick's like, uh, you know what? I, I disagree with you. I, I'm sorry, but I cast it and this is the way it's going to be. Well, Ermy barked an order at Kubrick to stand up. And Stanley obeyed him. And needless to say, Stanley let him take the part. And Stanley also let Ermy improvise most of his lines. All of those insults were right from Ermy. And that goes to show you a sneak peek into how real life army basic training really goes. And how they speak to each other. Now I guess Val Kilmer wanted the part of Private Joker so bad. He wanted to physically fight Modine for it. I love that stuff. He wanted it pretty bad. <laughs> how about that? Alright, good, good for you Val. Hey, you know what? Stick up for yourself bro. You know, you want that role bad? Hey. Actors want uh, roles bad enough, they're willing to do anything for it. I'll, I'll fight you for it. Let's arm wrestle. All right. Here's a cool tidbit. Kubrick was driving in his wife's new SUV with the cinematographer and Lee Ermy. And they were going along for the ride. Kubrick was driving. Kubrick noticed a great location and took his eyes off the road and the car fell into a ditch. This didn't stop Kubrick's train of thought. He continued talking about the location as they were climbing out of the car in the ditch. Stanley had young, aspiring actors make audition tapes and send them to him. He received 3,000 entries and he personally watched 800 on his own. This is a great film. A different kind of Vietnam film. And I liked it because you get a glimpse of basic training and all its rawness. I'm intrigued by that stuff. Okay, his last film was Eyes Wide Shut. This may be my favorite of Stanley's. You could tell he really cared about this film. The movie was filled with much secrecy when it was being filmed. I remember that. You know, I lived in New York at the time when this was all going on, and it was kind of a big deal. Uh, Kubrick had Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman going through all sorts of shit. Stanley made it very clear that there would be strict rules about how they work together. And for the sex scene that Nicole had with the uh, officer that she fantasized about, took several days to shoot, with Cruz never being able to see his wife during the time. Now, Cruz was just told through the grapevine that they were nude, and they were shooting the scenes all nude, and it took many takes. I would say that was a nice touch, by Stanley. This, I'm sure, got Cruz all riled up, confused, and pissed. Now that is getting to the psyche of the actor. The film was supposed to be set in New York City, but of course was filmed in England. The mystery in this film is so intriguing, and once again, the use of music is bone-chilling. 
the few notes that is painted on the piano, I mean, you just hear it over again and over. It's like it comes, it becomes a part of the movie. That ding, 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 really creepy. Now, the scene between Sidney Pollock and Cruz took over two hundred takes, and I love that scene. It kind of reveals everything at the end. It took two weeks to shoot. Uh, Pollock was not the original choice for that role. It was supposed to go to Harvey Keitel. The sex orgy scenes are truly shocking. And that is exactly what Kubrick wanted. And I will dive more into this elite underworld stuff in a moment. This was the longest shoot for a film in history. It took 400 days to shoot. Wow. That is so unbelievable. That is a long time, man. That is a marathon film. You have to come to this simple conclusion, people. He wanted this one to be his masterpiece. I believe that it was. I really do. Okay, here it is, people. Here we go. And it must be talked about when discussing Kubrick. He brought to the screen a few touchy subjects that require our attention to take notice. I want to be clear that these observations are not mine, but I have done extensive research on Stanley because I find him fascinating, and I think he's the greatest artistic director ever. Uh, I think his personal life to be even more interesting. This is what I discovered. There are people out there that truly believe that Stanley Kubrick was somehow connected with elite people in not only the entertainment world, but those of high society. It is believed that he was approached to do certain things for them, and he chose to oblige them on a few occasions, and in the process, was privy to information he felt it necessary to show in his work. And here are a few examples of these certain things. Lolita and the subject of pedophilia. Dr. Strangelove and nuclear war. A Clockwork Orange and MK Ultra Mind Control. Barry Lyndon is a film centered on high society. The Shining and the Apollo 11 moon landing. Now some believe that Stanley snuck in little Easter eggs about the moon landing. And why? Oh, because he directed the fake moon landing, of course. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? But there are people out there that believe this. Okay. And they're going, they give you uh, examples, okay, of this very thing. They say that in The Shining, all right, the manager that Jack Nicholson speaks to in the beginning of the film Looks like John F. Kennedy. And he does. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, this character is wearing red, white, and blue. I and mean, that could just be a coincidence. But he is wearing red, white, and blue. Uh, the Apollo 11 mission was called the Eagle. Right? And there's an Eagle statue right behind the actor's head. This John F. Kennedy character. Right? He's got a, a statue of an Eagle right behind him. Uh, and this one is kind of creepy, though. Danny actually is wearing an Apollo 11 sweater with a rocket ship on it. Folks, I'm not making this shit up. 
It's intriguing to say the least. And Eyes Wide Shut was done about the elite and what they do at parties. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, wh- what else do you want me to say about that? I mean, really, there's nothing else to say. More. That movie is basically about the elite and what they get away with, I guess, right? And he spent how long making this movie? I mean, this is, wasn't a passing thing for him. None of his projects were, all right? And he took a great deal of time and effort, especially... With this one. Uh, so it just a little something to think about. I mean he's already a fascinating person. And everything like that. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to kind of put that into this uh, episode. And uh, do I believe any of this stuff? Not really. <laughs> but you know what? It's pretty damn fun to discuss. Right? Yeah, I love that stuff. I do. It's interesting. I mean why not? Think outside the box. But anyway, uh, Stanley Kubrick has been nominated for 13 Academy Awards. He won for his work in special effects in uh, Space Odyssey. And uh, these are the films that were nominated for Best Picture. Dr. Strangelove, A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, and Barry Lyndon. Wow, what an episode. And I'm so sad that this episode is going to be over soon. (laughs) I mean... What a guy he was. What an artist. And such a figure. It isn't said often, okay, with this word, because people don't like throwing it around unless they mean it. But I think it's safe to say that this man was a genius. And I have no problem saying it. And I believe it. And he has his work to back it up. He put together a string of films that are rich with quality. You watch his films and they make you think. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Expand your mind. And Stanley did his part to help in that process. Thank you, Stanley Kubrick, for giving some of your artful mind to us. And I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Actors Room, highlighting director Stanley Kubrick. And I want to take this time to thank some of the people out there that have been supporting me and this show. As always, my brother Dave. He makes a point to tell me how much he liked the newest episode. Thanks, dude. And my cousin Dan and his fiancée Bridget, I guess they listen to the show together every week. And that's very nice. Thanks, guys. Um, And I want to thank Libby Cleary. Uh, She has been supportive of this uh, podcast from the very beginning. And she shares all the posts that I put up about the show on Facebook and stuff. So thank you very much. Looking at the geographical numbers on my podcast, I can see where people are listening, right? And that's all I see. I have a few people listening in Japan. I have people listening in Portugal, Spain, and Mexico. So very flattering that it's actually reaching beyond the United States. Very cool. Um, Before I end this episode, here is a little clip of Steven Spielberg talking about Stanley. But before I let you listen to that as I end this episode, thank you once again to listening to The Actors Room. Uh, Leave reviews and comments on iTunes or the website. Thank you very much. God bless you. Have a good one. When we first met, which was 1980, when he was just finishing the construction of his sets for The Shining, 
and we met for the first time. Um, we talked a lot about movies, and I was about to make Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I was actually moving on to his stages. When he finished, I was moving in. And, of course, when his stage burnt down, it changed my schedule. We had to go to France first to start shooting to give Stanley a chance to finish Strike and let us spill the well of the souls where the Overlook main hotel, you know, lobby was, the main room where Jack Nicholson did the, the infamous typing. Um, when it was all over and the movie was done, I saw Stanley again and went to his house for dinner in London and in, in, in St. Albans. And, and he asked me uh, quite, you know, he said, how did you like my movie? And I'd only seen it once, and I didn't love Shining the first time I saw it. I have since seen Shining 25 times, one of my favorite pictures. Kubrick films tend to grow on you. You have to see them more than once. But the wild thing is, I defy you to name me one Kubrick film that you can turn off once you start it. It's impossible. He's got this fail-safe button or something. It's impossible to turn off a Kubrick film. But I didn't like it the first time I saw it. And, and, and I, I, told, I, I, was, I was telling him all the things I liked about it, and he saw right through me. And he said, well, well Stephen obviously didn't like my picture very much. And I said, well, there's a lot of things I loved about it. He says, yeah, but there's a lot of things you didn't, probably more you didn't than you didn't, so tell me what you didn't like about it. And I said, well, the thing that I, I thought Jack Nicholson, who was a great actor, and I thought it was a great performance, but it was almost a great kabuki performance. It was almost like kabuki theater. He said, you mean you think Jack went over the top? And I said, yeah, I, I, I kind of I did. And he said, okay, quickly, without thinking, who are your top favorite actors of all time? And I want you to think, just name off some names. So I quickly, you know, went Spencer Tracy, you know, Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, you know, Cary Grant, Clark Gable. He said, stop. He stopped me. He said, okay, where was James Cagney on that list? And I didn't have it. I thought, well, he's, he's up there high. He I said, ah, oh, but he's not in the top five. He said, you don't consider James Cagney one of the five best actors around. You see, I do. This is why Jack Nicholson's performance is a great one.